that you are here. If you are joining us online, glad that you are doing that as well. Um, we are continuing our series in Acts. And uh, but before I get into that, I just want to say thank you to Lansdowne Alliance Church, particularly those of you who have been here for a while. Today is my sixth anniversary of being your pastor, so uh, thank you for that. And um, yeah, really happy to be here. I got the pleasure and the joy yesterday of going to, um, well, the travel there wasn't pleasurable and joy because it was like four hours, but uh, I went to Stanton, Virginia yesterday and um, got to watch uh, a young man named Colin Reed, uh, who I've been mentoring for the last couple years for ordination, actually get his ceremony and be ordained. It was kind of funny because uh, if you've never been to one of those ceremonies, one of the things that happens is that the person's mentor kind of comes down the aisle with them and says, Mr. Superintendent, I present to you so-and-so for ordination. And it felt very similar to me, like what the father of a bride does at a wedding. So I was kind of waiting to say your mother and I, but I wasn't sure, and it was weird. Uh, and so that was that was a lot of fun. So um, thank you for letting me. Uh, that's part of my duties as pastor and ministry here. So uh, really happy to be uh, doing that. So if you have a Bible, uh, let's get to what I really am supposed to be doing. Acts 21 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Acts chapter 21. So. We've basically been following the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Acts, and at least in our recent weeks together. Uh, and what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul, number one, he, he's traveling all over the place and quickly. Um, I was having a conversation with our district superintendent, many of you know Doug Connolly, yesterday. He just returned from a trip to Greece. Uh, and so we were talking about this part of Acts because of all the cities that are named and how uh, you know how much of a travel, how much travel that is, especially when you don't have air-conditioned buses to take you everywhere, uh, like the Apostle Paul didn't have. So uh, we've been following along with the Apostle Paul in this part of Acts, um, and, and what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that he lived, fought, and died with kind of an unwavering passion for God. Uh, that passion was turned towards Jesus uh, in that famous story that we know from the scriptures, where he's knocked off of his horse and. Uh, he comes and Jesus appears to him and says, you're going to serve me, basically. And that's the story of Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle. And so we see that uh, because he has this passion, um, he doesn't allow what we saw last week is he doesn't allow even the well-intentioned but misplaced pleadings of his loving friends uh, who were with him, other Christians who were with him last week's uh, last week. Um, he doesn't allow their well-intentioned but misplaced pleadings, which were arguments for kind of self-control, self-preservation, to sidetrack him from obeying what he feels is the call of God, the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, and so Paul isn't Jesus, and so we know that Paul's not perfect. He did sin. I know we read the, the, the scriptures and we read like the Apostle Paul, and we're like, we just have, we do the same thing to Moses. We do the same thing to all these characters in the scriptures, but they're just people. The only one perfect in there is Jesus. Uh, so he makes mistakes. Uh, even though he's an apostle, he sins. And in fact, there's a number of people who think, uh, even last week, but uh, particularly this text starting today, there's a number of commentators and scholars who think this is an example of Paul's fallibility as a human. This sort of chunk of scripture from 21.17 into 22, verse 29. Now, whether it is or not sin, uh, what we do know, what we, what we can see from the text is he is devoted fully to God. He's passionate about God. And so um, he also longs for the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. We, we know this from the, the text in Acts. We know this from other places. And so what we're going to see today is Paul 
in pursuit of his, uh, his brothers and sisters from the Jewish community for their salvation. And we see him kind of engage in kind of what is like a, a controversial accommodation to uh, something very Jewish. Uh, and we're going to get to that. So what we see is that Paul is willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, that's one of the threads I want to kind of pull on today. So Acts 21, we're going to start in verse 17. Um, there's a number of faces here today that are new to me. And so if you're new or you haven't been in a while, what we do is we just take a little chunk at a time and just kind of walk our way through over the next few minutes. So we know that Paul has been waiting for just kind of the right moment to go to Jerusalem. He said he wants to be there for Passover. Uh, and so he's, he's waiting for that. And now here it is. And so with the Passover crowd, and maybe you've heard this uh, the, this kind of uh, reality before, but during Passover, this city would swell up to probably about 2 million people. So tons of people in Jerusalem, and this is when Paul enters the city, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So the brothers is a reference to the church at Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Remember, this is Paul's thing, the ministry to the Gentiles. So he's not coming back to the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and reporting to them what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, I wish it stopped there because that's a pretty sweet little summary of what would be a great missionary report. Uh, so he meets with the brothers they greet Paul in the travel group. They meet the following day with James and the leadership of the Jerusalem church. Uh, there's evidence that there were maybe about 70 elders. And you're like, holy cow, that is a lot of elders. That is a lot of elders. But don't forget, this is a church for an entire city. So this might be like if all of the senior pastors of the churches of Baltimore got together. That would be kind of what this would be like. So um, there's probably about 70 elders likely patterned after the Sanhedrin, uh, which would be the kind of Jewish board of governance, sort of, if you will. Uh, so if this is true, think about, uh, I mentioned I went to an ordination ceremony yesterday. Well, part of ordination in the alliance is that you sit in front of the licensing, ordination, and consecration council, and you basically get grilled on your theology. Uh, so imagine that type of setting, but there's 70, right? So kind of imposing, Right? There's a group of people that want to hear from you, and it's, you're speaking to them. It's, it's a big kind of imposing group asking Paul and his companions questions. Uh, the leader of this group, the kind of first among equals here, is James. Uh, one of his nicknames, James the Just. He's a half-brother of Jesus, um, and he is famous for his piety. We've mentioned this before. One of his nicknames, as well as James the Just, was Camel Knees. Uh, because of the way his knees were like those of a camel, because of the amount of time he spent in prayer. So this is a very pious man, James. Now, Paul does two things in sort of this interview setting. First, he shares the amazing things that God has done among the Gentiles, right? Now, let's take a little recap, right? The Ephesian riots that come about because of the social impact of the gospel. Remember, the silversmiths almost throw a riot. The power of the gospel in Athens and in Corinth, Paul's escape from would-be assassins. Uh, he probably told the story of poor Eutychus falling out of the window and then being uh, resurrected or resuscitated during Paul's sermon in Troas. He probably likely presents samples 
of those who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus. Names like Trophimus of Asia and Secundus of the Thessalonians, right? Those are names we've read about. So Paul's going to share all this stuff. Many of you in this room have been here when a missionary comes and talks about what's going on in their work. Uh, and, and so this is what's kind of happening here. But uh, although Luke doesn't mention it, we know Paul presented the love offering also taken among the Gentile churches for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Um, we, we know this because um, so, some of the writing in other parts of the New Testament. So he delivers this gift, and that's his main reason for going to Jerusalem, to bring this gift for those suffering Christians in Jerusalem. Although he fears that it will be rejected, we read about that in Romans 15, uh, because of uh, sort of a rising Jewish nationalism that's going on, and an increasing number of legalistic Christians who are uh, doing what Paul says in other places they shouldn't be doing, which is putting things on top of the gospel. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, and so it would have been a relief for Paul that they did accept the love offering because he is trying to build unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians. There is no longer two people but one by the blood of Christ uh, is one of uh, the things that Paul has said in another place. And so as a result, verse 20, they glorify God. So it seems like everything's going well in this missionary report. And so I feel like it's probably a little, maybe a little surprising to Paul, although maybe he should have expected it based on his experience up to now in the book of Acts. But there's a problem. The elders tell him, you know what, there's actually an issue. Look at verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God. And then they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to, your, to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Okay, so a lot going on here. Here's what we have kind of happening. Some of the believers in Jerusalem believed mistakenly that Paul was kind of off base in his teaching. Uh, the church had kind of propagated and heard and continued basically slander about Paul. Slander is hearsay, if you will, about Paul. Misinformation, we might call it, right? Lies, whether intentional or unintentional, about Paul and his motives. I, I found this little story in, in one of my commentaries this week about a little parable about the power of slander. Maybe you've heard this before, but I hadn't. It said this. In an eastern land, a woman repeated a bit of gossip about a neighbor. And within a short time, the whole town knew the story. The slandered person was deeply hurt and most unhappy. But then the one responsible for spreading the rumor learned that it was completely untrue. So she went to a wise old sage to find out what she could do to repair the damage. After listening to her problem, he said, go to the marketplace, purchase a fowl and have it killed. Then on your way home, pluck its feathers one by one and drop them along the path. Though she was surprised by this unusual advice, the woman did as she was told. The next day, she informed the sage that she had done as instructed. And he said, now go and collect all those feathers and bring them back to me. The lady followed the same path, but to her dismay, the wind had blown all the feathers away. After searching all day long, she returned with only two or three in hand. You see, said the wise old man, it is easy to drop them, but impossible to bring them back. Likewise, it does not take much to spread a false rumor, but you can never completely undo the wrong. I read that this week and went, yikes, social media, right? Yeah. Crazy, even faster. 
Now, this rumor about Paul that had spread was going to be nearly impossible to take back, right? And so there's also this issue that the mother church in Jerusalem, we, we can see from other parts in the scriptures, are a little bit slow to accept the Gentiles. They, they had found it difficult to receive the testimony of Peter about the conversion of Cornelius, if you remember that story. They were a little suspicious of the work among the Samaritans at the count of the Jerusalem church without realizing it, right? And we, we assume best of intentions, but without realizing it, was actually compromising and perhaps even a little prejudice. We see this even in Acts chapter 6 with the, the widows and the bread, right? And her sins of lying and gossip and compromise eventually lead to a rejection for Paul. And so the elders now come up with a suggestion that's honestly pretty questionable in verse 23, right? So here's what you should read. Your elders are not perfect. I know that's a shock to you, but um, they're not. And, and the ones here are not either. Look at verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among, along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So what is this? This is a bit of a religious test for Paul. They ask Paul to essentially pick up pretty considerable expenses for four men who had taken a Nazarite vow. That's the vow that they've uh, taken. Now, that's a vow to abstain from meat and wine and to not cut their hair for, for 30 days. So Paul would have to undergo now a seven-day ritual of purification. He is going to have to pay for three animal offerings for each man, plus uh, what's called cereal and drink offerings. Uh, and, and this is not cheap, right? He's going to have to pay for this out of his pocket. Now, we know that Paul is not against Nazarite vows whole cloth. He's not against them as, as, an, as an idea. Uh, in fact, he seems to have taken one himself back in chapter 18, uh, so the request doesn't appear on the surface to be unreasonable, but there's a little more to this uh, than what we see kind of just on the surface at first glance, because there's kind of an implicit exchange of favors here. Here's kind of what's going on. We've accepted this gift, Paul, from these Gentile churches abroad, which associates us with your Gentile ministry. And so now we want you to do this so that you will openly associate with our sort of Jewish re religious nationalism that we've got going on a little bit. So they're not asking Paul to give up his Gentile ministry. Uh, we see that in verse 25. But they want to portray him as a little bit extra Jewish. They want to make sure that people see him as a real Jew, right? And so this is maybe the, the first case of kind of church power politics in recorded history but definitely not the last, right? But this is, that's what this is. When people say we don't like church politics, this is the kind of stuff they're talking about. Now, based on what we know of Paul's commitment to the gospel of Jesus and, and some of his other writings, he, he probably didn't like this idea. And yet what we see is that he submits to it in verse 26. So then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So what's the deal here? Is Paul compromising? Is he mistaken? Is he sinning? And let me just show you kind of two arguments, two sides of different scholars and what they 
think here and commentators think here and we can kind of go from there. Some say no, including uh, a really respected uh, scholar named F.F. Bruce who says this, whether Paul was wise in doing so may well be doubted, but he cannot fairly be charged with a compromise of his own gospel principles. On the contrary, he was acting in strict accordance with his own stated policy in which he's referencing Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So, perhaps Paul is in error uh, to participate in this Nazarite ritual suggested by the elders um, in Jerusalem here. However, others, uh, Paul, others say that Paul was most certainly sinning. They would argue that Paul goes against what he had written uh, long before this in his letters to the Galatians and to the Romans. I'm going to read you some of that regarding what he calls Judaizing or adding law to grace. This is a, an issue that we deal with in the church even today, right? We, we do this in our own hearts without realizing it. Well, yeah, 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 that person says they come to faith, but I'm going to need to see some good behavior first, as if we're the arbiter of righteousness, right? Here's what Paul warns the Galatians of. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's strong language. Anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Literally, Paul is saying, if somebody preaches you a different gospel, they can go to hell. That's, that's how that language sounds. In Galatians, Paul also told about how he opposed Peter, what, face to face. Why? Because Peter shrunk back from those specific Jews who he was kind of nervous about. He caved to legalistic uh, prejudices from uh, the Jerusalem church, from those who came, and he refused to eat with Gentile brothers and sisters in Galatians 2. And so later in Galatians, Paul explained that they no longer need the law. Listen to Galatians, sorry, Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Right? So to use this kind of guardian language, under the law you're a kid following rules. But under Christ, you're an adult who has the character of a person who lives like the rules you used to follow. You see the difference? One is because you're being told so, and one is of your free volition. 
So which view of these two of Paul is correct? I hate to break it to you. I, I'm not totally sure. Right? If Paul's not in error, he's probably close. And so why did Paul go along with the Jerusalem elders' advice? The answer is really to his credit. It's a, it's a underneath all of this action, there's a character thing about Paul that's really to his credit. And that's that he loved the Jews. He loved them and wanted their salvation. We see Paul talk about this in his letter to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 9. He even prefaces it. I'm speaking, I'm not lying. I'm t- guys, I'm, t- I'm begging you to listen. I'm telling you the truth. That's what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I wish that if I could, I could make a deal with God where he'd send me to hell so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could know the salvation of Jesus. That's what he says. That's how passionate he is about them. He's willing to be damned if it means that his Jewish brothers and sisters will be saved. He knows this is impossible because there's only one mediator between God and men, and it's Jesus. But that's how much love he has for his countrymen. And so Paul here, he kind of, he, he capitulates to the Jerusalem church because he loves the people. I think that's the best way to make sense of what's happening here. But I think he also does this for kind of a unity or the solidarity between Jewish and Gentile churches. And Paul's desire for Christian unity is really a reflection of Jesus' same desire in his high priestly prayer, John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, so that's Jesus talking and We can take that to mean the the Christians in Acts that that we're talking about here in our text today. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. You see how unity and God's glory are directly attached there. I, I hadn't thought about that until this week as I was reading this and thinking about Paul's desire for unity between Jews and Gentiles and just unity in general and the connection Jesus makes to glory there. It's really kind of fascinating that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Paul has this massive vision of unity, a church of Jews and Gentiles united. That's wild for them. Not caving to cultural trends and sin in one direction, but also not giving in to religious legalism. And yet, along with the elders, kind of what seems like a compromising suggestion. Why? He loved his lost brothers and sisters more than he loves his own life. And he's longing for the evangelistic power that God manifests through a church that is unified. So what do we learn from Paul's experience? A couple of things, just as we... Uh, land the plane here. First, you need to know you can be pressured towards questionable action by the sin of other people. You can be pressured towards questionable things, unwise. Maybe not sinful for you, but unwise. It's possible to do things that are unwise and yet not sinful. If the Jerusalem church had defended Paul, as it seems like they should have, and had been teaching its Christian converts correctly... This pressure wouldn't have come on Paul. 
But we live in a fallen world and our own sins and the sins of those around us sometimes cloud our eyesight and make it difficult for us to know what's right and what's wrong. So we need to lean into grace when our brothers and sisters make what we consider to be mistaken choices or wrong choices, considering not only their actions, but assuming the best of intentions in them. We, it's so easy to assume the worst of intentions in people, isn't it? That's what road rage is. That's what that is. You assume that they're out to get you. I mean, they might be, but maybe they're just running late. If Paul made an error here, hear me, it's an error of judgment, and I don't think it's an error of the heart. Those are two different categories. Second thing, we, like Paul, need to have such a, a passion for the salvation of others, right? And for God's glory that we're willing to run the risk of unwise decisions. Now, don't hear me say we run into unwise decisions. Not saying that. But we're willing to run the risk of making a decision that, that when we look back on, we might go, ah, man, that was not the best decision. Some of us, some of us are on the end where we're, un, we're just unwise, right? We just do foolish things and... We just never practice wisdom. But some of us would rather never risk anything. Some of us desire kind of a, a, a little zone of comfort where there's no wisdom needed, no discernment needed, and, and definitely we're, we're kind of in our little bubble safe from sin. And we never have to like figure out, wait a minute, Lord, I, I need some discernment here. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. But, but following Jesus has some danger to it. It just does. Following Jesus means that you might have to do things for the sake of others that annoy you because you love them. Right? I, I think, and I, I can't make an ironclad argument, but I think Paul is probably a little annoyed at having to do this whole thing. But he does it. Why? Because he loves his countrymen for the sake of the gospel. And so as we continue here into verse 27, the situation gets way worse. But God's going to come through for Paul. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. There's some slander. That's not true. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. And remember, we talked about how the crowd was extra big in the city. The people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So the scene is chaos. It's mayhem here in these verses. But we know that God is in control. And in this case, God divinely protects Paul. Uh, if you read verses 31 to 36, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we see that a big amount of soldiers, probably about 200 soldiers, um, they pour in uh, to the scene. And we know it's probably more than 200, according to a couple scholars, because... There's more than one centurion, and if you have the NASB translation, you'll see that in Acts 21, verse 32, that there's a couple centurions, so that's probably a couple hundred soldiers. So it's a big scene. 
They take Paul away from the murderous crowd. Interestingly enough, you notice his hands and his feet are tied up, or he's tied up, which was what Agabus said would happen. You remember that? Uh, and so they, uh, they, they take him away from the murderous crowd as the crowd cries away with him. And then, in the middle of this moment of chaos and of anger, Paul does something pretty crazy. If this was me, I, I would be like all the guys on TV that you see when they get arrested and they like hide their face, right? As if we don't know who it is getting arrested. Uh, that's what I would want to do. I would want to kind of just curl up and disappear into the, into the ground. Like, okay, I, I, I'm out of here. But Paul doesn't do that. What does he do? He asks for it and he gets permission to address the crowd. Look at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who was recently stirred up, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So Paul says, hey, can I talk to you? And the guard says back to him, do you speak Greek? Wait, aren't you an Egyptian guy who stirred up a big thing? And Paul says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So he's like, no, I'm not that guy. Here's who I am. I beg you, permit me to, let, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then it continues on. Now, you remember from last week, the people that Paul was with did not want him to come to Jerusalem. But Paul would not be able to address this crowd if he had not come to Jerusalem at this moment and have this trouble, right? Because he gets an official to let him talk, a guard to let him do the speaking. It's amazing that Paul does this because he's probably just been pretty badly beaten. A crowd rushed in on him. This story is, is so incredible that there are those who even question whether his speech even took place. But they're wrong. His speech does take place because for someone with a heart like Paul's, depending as he does on the empowering Holy Spirit and filled with the love of Jesus uh, for those who don't yet know of the love of Jesus, this kind of moment is not out of the question. I would challenge you, study the history of church, the church and, and of missionaries. This is not the only account like this. And so I wanted to close today by using a written prayer uh, that gives words to some of what maybe some of us are kind of feeling as we think about these stories today. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and pray along with me. I'm going to read this prayer as our closing prayer this morning. Oh God, as we seek to know your will, we sometimes are not sure which way to go or what action to take. Please help us not to be so afraid of making a wrong decision that we sit on the sidelines, nor to be oversure of ourselves and so take a wrong turn or cause brothers and sisters in Christ to do so. May we ever be moved with a burning love for others that will not allow us to hoard the gospel. Whether convenient or costly, may we take full advantage of opportunities to voice the good news of new life in Jesus Christ. Amen.